Thank you. Thank you. I'm so blessed to be here. I'm out without my wife this time, Linda. She sends her greetings. Uh, just to remind you the basics, we live in Yakima, Washington. Um, you may remember that when she's with me, we always give a report of what we do in other countries, primarily Pakistan and Indonesia have been our recent countries that we've been working in. Uh, Linda actually went to Pakistan without me last, which is the first time she's gone to one of these scary countries without me. And it's not nice. It's not comfortable. I've been doing it for 40 years, leaving her at home. Now the first time she left me, I'm thinking, what in the world? Here I am at home worrying. Here she's been feeling these all these years that I've been in these countries. Um, and so I can't get back into Pakistan because somehow I got on a bad list over there. We did 12 years of television in Pakistan, uh, five days a week. We just read through the New Testament and we read a verse, talk about it, read a verse, talk about it. And several million Muslims have been listening to us for those 12 years. But we became recognizable enough that she can still get into the country, but I can't, um, unless something changes. So we still have a lot of work going on there. We have our five Bible colleges in Pakistan, and we also have um, a work Ben Nichols leads, which is freeing the slaves. There are two million slaves in Pakistan, and there's seven paths to freedom. So we've been able to get several thousand slaves out of slavery, but we have a constant course, a river, getting them out of slavery and back into freedom. We have 16 homes, which are transition homes from the slave yards into a year's training to give them a trade, and then we put them in homes. And so we have an educational program where they get a trade, we educate the children because the government passed a law that if any child can pass the fifth grade national test, they can, someone in the family can leave the brickyard, the slave yard, get a real job and buy the freedom for their family. So one of our main projects is building these schools to train slaves. So we have 22 schools right now. Our goal is to have 350 schools because that's how many schools it's going to take to free 2 million slaves. So that's the plan we've got. Most of these slaves work in brickyards. They make bricks 16 hours a day. They're on squatted down, producing bricks by hand. Um, they have to average 1,000 bricks a day to break even. That means... In order to simply pay their room and board, they have to make a thousand bricks a day. It's almost impossible to make a thousand bricks a day. Um, and so usually, if you were born in the brickyard, your descendants will be in the brickyard for as long as they can be. So this is the first chance that we're actually trying to destroy the whole system. Uh, we have now purchased two brickyards and started our own. But rather than making the slaves slaves, we are paying the slaves living wages, and now everything is mechanized, and then we're holding conferences for the other 20,000 slave owners to come see how we mechanize these things and try to convince them that it's more prosperous to mechanize than to run slaves. So we've got these two slave yards of our own, which are not slave yards anymore. They're mechanized, well-paying brickyards. And that's another process of 
ending slavery in that country. So that's what we're doing. Um, last time Linda was there, we gathered slaves from one area, which came from all the different slave yards. We got permission for the slave owners to allow them to come to one large gathering. First time in the history of the country, slaves have been able to leave, and just over 20,000 slaves together, and Linda, my wife, was able to present the gospel to them. Um, almost all of them, many of them, most of them are already Christians, but almost all of them raise their hands again, as they often do to receive Christ at every opportunity. Um, and so we are still blessed and everything is happening over there. So I just give you an update on that. So I want to get into the word with you. I always love to get in the word with you, but I'm not going to have just one theme to talk to you about this morning. I have several different short topics that I like to address, one after the other, and then I'm hoping I can minister prophetically over some of you at the end of this time. So if you are in a place in your life where you wish you feel God would speak to you prophetically, you can keep your heart ready for that towards the end of this. I'd like to start off by saying and asking the question, why do we do this thing called church? Why are we gathered here today? That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. I want to add on that Jesus is trying to do something. Jesus wants a people. God has always wanted a people. It's not enough just for Jesus to save individuals, but throughout the Old Testament, God wanted a people. In the New Testament, Jesus came. He wants a people. Now, they were called the ecclesia, which is, means called out ones, meaning he wanted a community separated from the world, called together to be his people. God wants a people. He just doesn't want saved individuals. That's why we do this thing. You know, in some ways, it'd be a lot easier not to do this thing. Running church is a lot of work. You make decisions. You got relationship struggles. There's always things going on in church. There's people outside of the church world that like to ridicule the church. And then there's individuals where there's struggles with leadership. There's financial stress. There's a lot of things that are required to do this thing. So we might as well get it settled. Why do we do this thing? Well, first of all, Jesus is doing this thing. I will build my church and nothing will prevail against it. This thing is going to continue being successful up until the return of Jesus, things may fail around it, but the church will always exceed. Nothing can prevail against it. It has come through 2,000 years of much more difficult times than today's struggles. The church has been through it all. My people in Pakistan don't even understand why we complain. Two months ago, about 45 of our Christian homes were burned down and eight churches were burned to the ground. Um, several of the Christians in the communities were stoned to death. And that usually happens about three times a year to our Christians over there, our brothers and sisters. But I'm amazed that as a people over there, they have no doubts that they're going to out-survive everything because they have such a strong faith that they are the people of God called out of the world 
and everything else may come against them, but they have a confidence, but we will survive. But we will continue to grow. But we will advance. Seems like at times in history, we can get our eyes set on the negative, turmoil, people saying negative things, rather than losing the big picture, a historical picture. This thing began with one man and his 12 disciples and some ladies who were helping and following along. And today, this is the largest entity on earth today, Christianity. Out of just under 8 billion people, there is no country, no organization, nothing bigger on earth than Christianity. 2.6 billion people out of 8. That's about one out of three human beings on earth claims to be Christian. This entity is the largest, and Jesus said it was going to be. He says it'll start as the smallest of all seeds, and it will become the biggest entity on earth. Today it is. Sometimes people don't want you to know how successful it is because they're coming from the other perspective, and it's too easy to hear that. Here in our country, we've had two great awakenings. One targeted in the 1740s, the other 1805 to 1860. Second great awakening. At the height of the second great awakening, the height percentage of Americans who are attending church at the highest point were 34% were in church. Today, in America, 33% of Americans are in church, attending church. We're just one percentage below the highest point in the history of America, a percentage of Americans attending church. In the founding of this country, 1776, only 17% of Americans went to church. 17%. And those denominations were primarily the Anglican, the Congregational, and the Presbyterian. Baptists weren't here yet. Methodists weren't here yet. Most of the other denominations you've heard of didn't even exist. Very few Catholics were yet in this country. But only 17%. Today it's almost double the percentage are in church every Sunday as we're in church at the founding of our countries. For documentation of that, there's a book called The Churching of America that goes through all the studies, statistics of what the denominations kept record of. Because back at that time in history, Christianity consisted of denominations. Today, there are more Christians outside of the denominational structure in our nation than inside the denominational structure. Now bring it a little bit more home to even this body. Things have shifted in America in several different ways with the church. One of them is now there are over 1,500 multi-campus churches, and almost all of those are in the big cities. That means you've got a mother church, and then there's multi-campuses across the city or surrounding cities. Today there's over 1,500 of those. Those never existed before 20 years ago. But now they're very effective in winning Christianity. But now the vast majority of Christians don't attend those multi-campus churches. The vast majority of Christians attend churches of less than 75 people. In fact, over 75% of all churches in America are under 75 people. 
This is a big church compared to most churches in America. Sometimes you kind of get discouraged and you get your eyes focused on little things. But you are a community that's successful. And you can get your eyes on struggles and things that you personally are involved in and lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and what he's planted is the biggest entity on earth. The bigger picture that 33% of Americans are going to church right now, which is one point less than the highest in the history of this country. The bigger picture that they're twice the percentage today as in the founding of the country, 1776 or attending church. You can miss the bigger picture of the progress of the church in understanding truth. In the past, most of the churches you and I who were older grew up in, you grew up in one denomination, the denomination of your parents, and you stayed in that. Today, that's no longer true. Today, most of you have experienced several different denominations in your life, and what's being taught in one denomination spreads to the other denominations and it seems that the denomination people are reading the same books we're all singing the same songs something has happened in christianity in this nation when the walls that used to separate denominations aren't nearly as severe as they were when people like me were kids the body of christ is alive and healthy here on planet earth now, we did some errors, and in fact, we backed away from societal involvement for a period since about the 1960s. And because of that, Christianity in America did lose much of culture, much of education, and some of government. But there has been a powerful reversal of that since the year 2000, where Christianity is re-engaging in society and accepting responsibility again to be the salt and the light that we are created to be. There is a huge wave of Christianity, but that's partly why the, why the war is engaging right now is because we're entering back into the battle of winning society and culture back. And we're not going to give up. We're going to continue, and partly it's because there has been a shift in our understanding of eschatology, of what the church is, but when I say eschatology, an understanding of where is God taking us in the future, that we're not hiding out and letting everything go down the tube, but we're embracing a victorious mindset to say, no, God wants to use us to bring his kingdom to earth, which means to infiltrate and to change society. I want to say something boldly prophetic. You are a healthy church. And don't miss a time of visitation when God is upon you. God is working upon you. And he has been faithful to you. And he is revealing himself to you as his father, as a loving God. And you are blessed because of it. I get to see... Literally thousands of churches. Been over 40 years of traveling. Sometimes I get in over 10 churches in a week. 
You travel for 40 years and you're in a lot of churches. It's very easy to come into a church. It's like a mechanic who is fixing cars all day long. If you're fixing cars all day long, it's very easy to come in and tell you what's wrong with this car. When you come into churches, you can see things just like that to jump out. Like, look out at that parking lot. You know, in an unhealthy church, everybody's driving the same priced vehicle. In a healthy church, you got some vehicles with a bondo on the side, you got some pickups, and then you got some nice cars. Immediately that tells you something's going on in that church because these people from different social strata are getting along. And then when you come in and you see gray hair and you see children, you see the next sign of health. And then you see people who are of a variety where you can pick out, there's weird ones in their midst. <laughs> and I say, whoa, this place qualifies. <laughs> when you can't see weird ones, you need to worry about that church. <laughs> when they all look the same, oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> that church is headed downhill when they all look the same. This is 40 years of experience. This is, this is what I do for a living, is help churches. When you got somebody with a long beard, you got 20 bald heads, you got teachers from the university, and you got somebody with no education, and everybody talking to each other and worshiping Jesus together, you're in a good place. This is almost what Jesus would have wanted. This is real close to the kind of people he'd call together because he wants a people. It's kind of boring when everybody's the same. It's kind of boring when there's not conflicts. In your natural family, with your blood brothers and sisters. Any conflicts ever happen there? Yeah. Is Christmas always totally peaceful when we get together to eat? Is Thanksgiving calm and just hugs and kisses? No, families have struggles. I come back to this point. Prophetically, I declare to you, you're doing good. You're doing good. You're on the course. You're moving down a healthy path. Don't miss that God is among you, working powerfully, and he is going to continue. I was reading this morning um, from some of Travis's books. You all know your Travis. Where are you, Travis? You're back there. Travis wrote this and gave it to me last night, and most every weekend where I'm at whatever church, somebody's written some books. and So I get probably about five books a week. And I love to read. So I got up early this morning. The older I get, the harder it is to sleep in. And I just got a habit. I usually get up about three every clock every morning. And I love to read. I was reading this morning. 
And this one part brings me out a point in me, and I love the way Travis has worded this. Uh, his book is The Theology of Brokenness. And you can just feel in these pages that he's writing what he's lived. So this is a little bit biological, a little bit technical, but he ends this paragraph putting it where we can really understand it. Neurons that fire together, wire together. I like that. Neurons in your brain, you've got neural pathways that have been set up, ways of thinking that you've governed your life by. All of those neurons, electric pulses can stream down them real fast so you can make decisions. And decisions that you have made many times set up these neural pathways and so you can reuse them and your thoughts automatically go down those old pathways. Old neuron neurological pathways will lose their charge and atrophy as new pathways become charged and are strengthened. It's like putting a new path in a grassy field. To change the pathway, you have to quit using the old one and let the grasses reclaim it while using the new path more. The more the new path is used, the more of a well-trodden path it becomes. So I like the chemical, physiological explanation, but it much more comes down to you got a green yard and there's this path worn down it and you can see there's no grass growing on that path. That's an indication that that's probably where everybody's been walking. And it might be where they shouldn't be walking. The yard would have worked out a whole lot better if they had walked down the stepping stones instead of down that path. But if you want the path to grow in, you've got to stop walking on it. And every one of us, we've got these pathways set up in our mind and there are times in our lives where we discover that pathway takes me down the same logical scenario of thoughts, a progression of thoughts that they're logical, but it doesn't take me where I want to go. And wouldn't it be good if I had a different pathway that somehow I could stop walking down that pathway in particular areas of my life? And some of us, we get shaken off of a pathway because of a life experience. Others of us decide, no, I'm going to work on this, change my ways of thinking. I, got, I think probably the number one most often pathway, and maybe this is an overgeneralization, a pathway of thought that people get where there's a constant bombardment of the negative things they've done, and somehow their mind just seems to find that pathway, especially if they're tired or exhausted, it just always falls into that pathway and they're back thinking, reminding themselves of the negative things that have happened in their life. And it gets you nowhere, produces nothing. You know that path isn't going to lead you to freedom, but you find yourself back on a certain path. I do. My oldest son is a psychotherapist and he's always practicing on me. Okay. It's kind of good. It's kind of bad. Okay, I give both. He is absolutely amazing on how he knows how to deal with people. Okay, I, I'm not very good at dealing with people. I can deal with churches, but people confuse me sometimes, like every day. So here's this pathway, and sometimes he helps me. I had a problem with a neighbor, and we live kind of in the country, but we have... Uh, 10-acre lots, one after the other, each of our neighbors do. And the one right next door to us, um, 
a single lady takes care of this piece of property. But she has a lot of animals on there. And for some reason, she's the one neighbor I couldn't get along with. Now, I know that's not supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be a nice guy and get along with everybody. But my dog killed her chicken, and from that point, it went way off course. Uh, we have a, my oldest sister also lives with my wife and I. Because we're home only sometimes and we travel so much, she takes care of our home when we're gone. So she has been living with us. We took care of my mother for eight years. Um, and then when my mother passed away, my sister stayed living with us to take care of our home when we're out traveling. Well, my sister has her own mind, as sisters do. She's older than me, and she mows the grass, and she likes throwing the grass over into the neighbor's yard because she likes feeding. It's not a yard. It's an animal lot with uh, horses and goats and sheep and everything. She likes throwing the grass over there, but this neighbor lady really doesn't like it. And she's really mad at me because she thinks I'm the one that throws the grass over the lawn. But sometimes you can't tell women what to do. I don't, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but there are some issues, some issues where they just sink their feet in. Okay? Well, this is one issue that my sister sunk her feet in. And she throws the grass over, and the neighbor lady thinks it's me. Now, I've actually snuck at night over to her property to pick up the grass and throw it back into my yard. Because I don't like getting in trouble. Now, all the other neighbors, we have a really friendly neighborhood. Everybody knows everybody. And everybody knows this neighbor doesn't like me. Okay? Every night, her chickens come and roost in one of our trees. Um, and so my son came home, the psychotherapist, and he, you know, sees the problem. He's hoping that I'll ask him for help. <laughs> I'm wondering if I should ask him for help. Oh, Lord. I know he'll have the answer because he always knows how to deal with people. And I'm just blind to that. So it had been probably three years where she was mad at me. So... I actually had to put up a fence because sometimes fences help build better neighbors. <laughs> put up the fence, it didn't work. Her animals still came into my yard. So my son decided to speak out before I asked. He says, why don't you buy her a flower? She hates me. Well, her mother just died. He heard about it. He says, this would be the perfect opportunity for you to take her a flower. Okay, now, I'm actually a little bit scared of this lady. <laughs> she has more cuss words than I've said in my whole life, and she says them in every sentence, okay? Now, my wife is different, okay? Her father was a marine bartender, so... She's always leaned that direction, too, if things get bad. So I do have some experience in ladies who can talk like that, okay? Because there's been times of 45 years of marriage when at least I've tasted of it. But my neighbor, she never quits with what comes out. 
And my son says, why don't you buy her a flower? Her mother died. When my son talks like this, he's always right. I mean, he knows not to speak too often, but he knows when he needs to really help me through a thing. So I bought a flower. I took it over there and she's feeding her horses. As soon as I walked up to the fence, she threw open her arms and ran to me and hugged me and started crying. Three to four years of just hating me. One flower. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot to break down walls. It takes humbling yourself. It takes letting your guards down, risking things. But sometimes you can save a relationship with a strained child, save a relationship in marriage, save a relationship with an estranged parent. Sometimes just one act One phone call where you decide you're going to risk it can change the course of your life. And this whole thing about being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus Christ, I feel like I've got somehow an example. My leader, Jesus Christ, I'm trying to be like him, seems to have given us an example of ultimate humility of ultimately laying down, being right. At the risk of, yes, being rejected, but knowing there is a possibility that this will open up the floodgates for people to understand that his arms are open wide and he doesn't want estrangement from you and me. Seems like there's some things that we ought to be applying more quickly, more readily, that could really heal things more quickly. So I now am friends with all my neighbors. That's really cool. And my sister stopped throwing the grass into her property. That was amazing. I look at things going on in the world. I'm trying to wrestle through this whole church thing because that is my life. How does the church work? What is it that we're doing? And I find out that there's a lot of ways that we could be living out our Christianity that I don't think we take seriously enough in a really, really big part of being like Jesus is risking Rejection, but opening up your heart and communicating. And constantly being willing to even lay your neck on the line and say it again. No, this is what Christianity is all about. I am here wanting relationship and I'm willing to risk it on your behalf. I have a problem now going on with certain things in our society, one of them being how I find people not being able to identify truth and fix on it. I tend to be 
pretty intense, tend to be someone who tries to live my life in a pretty rigid way, sometimes too rigid, my wife would say. But in particular, I'm trying to plant it on what's written in this book. Through the years, I have found out that I can't use this book as if it was given to me by the God from Mount Sinai, but I must use this book as it's given to me by a loving father. That's really made a dramatic change in my life because for a lot of my Christianity, I was trained by people who focused on a God on Mount Sinai, and when he spoke, he spoke with, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this, and if you do the wrong thing, judgment will come from Mount Sinai, flood, and it will be vapor and fire, and it is going to be a terrifying judgment. I've come to realize, like many of you, that that's not the full revelation of who God is. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 gives an explanation, and he says that those who developed their concept of God from the Old Testament are actually have a clouded image of God, and it's only when we come to Jesus Christ do we get a clear image of who God is, and Jesus, what's revealed in his giving of his life on the cross, but also his teaching that he is trying to present God as a father to us, to say, this God whom you, the Jewish people, knew, you now need to relate to him as a loving father, and when you talk to him, say, our father. I found that has made such a profound change in how I study this book. Like when I understood and read the judgments in the Old Testament, I used to view those judgments through the God of Mount Sinai, and therefore what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah it was because he was really angry, and he torched those cities. But then when I come to believe God is a loving father, I had to sh shift my ideas about, God, what was your heart? What was your intentions? Why did you do that? I had another help in making this transition to rethink the Old Testament judgments not only seeing God as a father, but also when it was explained to me that the word judge in the Bible is different than the word judge in Western civilization. When we hear the word judge, we think of a judge in a courtroom who is having criminals come before them and the judge is declaring guilty or innocent and then imposing a punishment. That's our definition of judge. But when the word was used in the Bible for Hebrew Jewish people, their definition of judge was totally different. And to get their definition, you have to read what's called the Book of Judges. The book of Judges lists several leaders of the Jewish people, and none of them sat in a courtroom. None of them felt it was their job to impose penalties. What they actually did is, when they saw their people being oppressed, they were the ones to rise up into leadership in order to set the oppressed free and make things right, to make it secure and put the world back on its right course. That a judge, in Hebrew thought, was not a Western judge in a courtroom trying to punish people. It was, no, to end oppression and put things right. That was their definition of judge. Now, understanding God as Father and also shifting my definition of judge, I now have to rethink like Sodom and Gomorrah and say, oh, that changes everything. God wasn't angry at Sodom and Gomorrah. No, God had a heart of a father 
and he had a heart of a Hebrew judge. A Hebrew judge sees something that needs to be corrected and wants to put it on course. And that changes that the judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah was not out of anger. It was actually an act of redemption, God removing this lest it spread to the rest of humanity. I also have to rethink Noah's flood. That it wasn't God angry at the world. It says God was grieved. But the world had gotten so far off course, God had to start over with Noah and his family. It had gotten so far off course, what does the judge do? They set things back straight. They put the world back on its right course. A judge is not there. The heart is not punishment. The heart is, what do I have to do to get this thing back on course? To get this thing back so it will work. And that God's heart has always been to get things back on course. And his heart has not been from the judgment perspective. It has been from, I want to set things right. That changes my understanding of how God deals with sin in the, in the world today. We have to deal with some sin issues through a different eyes. Like homosexuality is a real big one today that the church has to wrestle with. And when I'm asked about this, one of the first things I want to do is help people see from a father's eyes homosexuality rather than from the judge of Mount Sinai. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a, a passage that is very enlightening but if you read it through the judge eyes, through Mount Sinai's eyes, you actually are kind of scared of this passage. I'll read it here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 9. And do you not know that unrighteousness, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? But do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swimmers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I kind of wish that passage wasn't in the Bible. Really hard to deal with in today's society. Now, for some people, it's not. They just want God to be this way towards sinners. But I'd like to point out, it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of Christians have confused in their brain the kingdom of God with heaven. You know, it doesn't say they will not inherit heaven. It says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God's not heaven. The kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ right now. It consists in righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is available today. You can walk in it today. You can walk in it tomorrow. The kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ. This passage isn't saying these people won't go to heaven. It's saying they won't experience the kingdom of God. See, I wrestle with this issue because I don't believe homosexuality is a salvation issue because that passage doesn't say it's a salvation. No, but there is something about when you give yourself to certain sins, you will not experience the kingdom of God in the sense that King Jesus wants to use you in this earth. And you could miss your destiny. You could miss what God wants to use you in establishing his kingdom on earth. It's a kingdom issue that you're making a choice, well, I am going to live in one of these ways of life. And coming from a father rather than a judge, 
It's not Mount Sinai God saying, I am going to judge you and smite you if you do these things. A father who has a child who's maybe doing something that they disapprove of doesn't have a heart to to smite, but a true father's heart is really, my child's gone astray and I want this relationship healed and I want them back home. It's like if you're a parent and you have a teenager that runs away from home, your first thought is not they're sinners. Your first thought is, I want my child home and I want him safe. I want to propose to you that Father God's heart, first of all towards sinners, is not to smite them, but it is a father saying, I wish I could help them get their life back on course. I want to be a Hebraic judge who's not concerned about punishment, he's concerned about helping them get their life back on course so that they can experience the most and the best. And here in this passage, I wish I could help them experience the kingdom of God while they're on the earth. As soon as you understand this passage that the kingdom of God is not heaven, you now have to take it literally rather than the mix-up you had in your brain and say, no, he's not saying they won't go to heaven because going to heaven is based on grace through faith. It's not based on your behavior, but it's given by grace through faith. It's not based on grace plus what you do. There's no plus. There's no minuses on the conditions to get to heaven. There's just one thing, faith and grace. Well, if someone has faith in Jesus Christ, they've been given grace for eternal life. But as soon as you dare let yourself think that way and let down some of the walls, you start maybe even being able to have a relationship with somebody who lives different than you. And you start seeing... Maybe it's not, maybe they're not as bad as I thought. Because when I had restricted their eternity to hell, I could rationalize keeping up a fence and never taking a flower to them. As soon as I had a theology from Mount Sinai, putting myself with God in Mount Sinai, saying, they're going to burn in hell... I can rationalize living on the other side of the fence and just being content in my own righteousness. But when I read this and say, no, what's at risk here is not heaven. What's at risk is they're going to miss out. Now, I want to take most of the Scripture from the perspective of God speaking as a father rather than a judge. For example, when God tells us, honor your father and mother... So things that may go well with you. You could hear those words from Mount Sinai. Honor your father and mother or it's going to be a mess in your life and God's going to smite you. Or on the other hand, you can think of a father who is simply trying to give you wise counsel and say, you know what? If you live your life honoring your father and mother, things are going to go easier in life. It's like you have a big rock You can roll it up a hill or down a hill. And somebody tells you 
don't roll the rock uphill, it's too hard. Roll the rock downhill. That's the same terminology as saying, honor your father and mother so things will go well with you. Instead of living your days estranged from your natural parents, you know what? Your life's going to be a whole lot easier if you humble yourself, risk it, and just open yourself up again. The rest of your life, it'll go easier. It was God talking like a father to his children, not a judge talking to criminals. It's a father trying to tell you. It's, it's your psychologist son telling you how life can be easier. It's not a God of judgment telling you you have to do this. He's just suggesting, you know, there's an easier way. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, that actually starts coming out in behaviors where you look at the people who have offense against you differently. And you stop thinking from the perspective of they're sinners who need to be smited from their lives would be a lot better if they could be experiencing righteousness, peace, and joy. And therefore, I'm not out to smite them, but I want to help them get their life on this easier course. I have another thing that I wrestle with. I said I'm going to go through these issues. I've got quite a few of the next generation who I hear them talk about uh, their reality or living by their truth, that you have a truth, I have a truth, um, and no longer is there one truth and there is no absolutes. That's been a real troubling thing for me. And sometimes as somebody in my late 60s, I feel like I'm outdated. When I hear them talking this way, sometimes I feel I don't know how to be relevant to these people. So I sit down and I try to think through the issues. And I, and I, try to, I understand, yes, there is certain absolutes that have been in the church used as clubs to say, this is truth, and you better measure up. And, and I don't want to be someone sitting on Mount Sinai declaring, thou shalt do this, laying down the law. I think that we missed it there. But on the other hand, there are truths. And truth is absolute. But it's a confusion of terms that are being redefined. That much of society now that... It, I'm having a difficult time, will define my truth. They redefine the word truth. And the truth that they have as a definition is, it's how you perceive the world around you is your truth. And you can only live with your truth because that's your only perception of your reality. And I'm sure most of you have been exposed to that way of thinking because it spreads among the generation under me and it is a strong way of thinking right now where everybody has their own truth and because of that, you can't judge each other. But you should let people live in their own truth. Now, I have to go back and first redefine the word truth. I'm going to go back to what the word truth meant when I was a child. You know, when I grew up, the word truth meant an understanding of what's real. That's what truth is. 
That's not the definition of truth among the people that are confusing me today. Their definition is one's understanding of their reality while they perceive. I've got to step back on that. My definition that I grew up with was an understanding of what is real and if it's not, the understanding does not match what is real, then it's not truth. It's actually a misunderstanding if the understanding does not match what is real. That's how the definition of truth for most of us um, who are over 50, our definition that we grew up with. But truth is not that definition anymore, but I'm going back to that definition because I think it is the real definition. Because if somebody is believing something, their understanding of reality is not an understanding of what's real, but it's just their reality. They understand their reality. Well, if that reality is not what's real, then they're not understanding what's real. Their understanding of reality is actually not truth, but it's their delusion. And should I just be content with everybody has their own delusion? No, it's not helpful to humanity to let people to continue going on saying you can live with your delusion, I can live with my delusion. Now they're using different terms. They've actually coined the word truth and said knowing reality, that's what your truth is. But I want to propose to you if your reality doesn't match what's real. It's not truth. It's actually delusion. Therefore, what's going on is we're giving permission for all people to have their own delusion. And I don't think we're helping humanity by allowing people to have their own delusions. And I have this conviction that the church is what Paul said, the pillar and the support of truth. That there has to be something that exists within society unshakenly that is going to continue saying, no, we know what truth is, and truth is understanding what's real. And I can't even use the reality because it has been redefined in today's society. That's why I'm using the word what's real. An understanding of what's real is truth. Not an understanding of reality because they have now changed the word reality to be your reality. They have personalized the word reality so you can have your own reality. And as soon as that is part of society, anyone now can have their own reality. They can believe that they're a cat. They can believe that they can fly. They can believe anything they want. And are we as God's people helping them by saying, okay, it's okay if you live in your delusion. Because it is a delusion, not truth. Even though you call it truth, from my definition of truth, from the true definition of truth, it's we're allowing you to live in a delusion, which means your life is going to go down a deluded path and you will spend your entire life down a deluded path. And here it is. God wants a people, but he wants a people who will stand for truth. There has to be a pillar within society. Now, I think the pillar within society, which is the church, is big enough 
to be, uh, what do you, now the, the word escapes me, enough people in a community to not catch a disease. What have we been calling it? What's that? Herd immunity. Did I hear that right? I wonder if it's possible that there would be an, a solid enough people living in America who believe truth to create herd immunity. So a delusion can't catch on. Well, if that is, then that herd would have to be settled on truth. But if the herd isn't settled on truth, if the herd is wishy-washy, they're not have anything in their life by which they've accepted as truth. They're just kind of listening with one ear and swaying with every voice. I think the herd's not going to be big enough the herd's not going to provide immunity. On the other hand, if God wants a people who have truth, perhaps we could be a herd immunity that keeps society sane. I think God wants his people to know truth enough to provide herd immunity to a nation. To stop being wishy-washy and to start being determined, I am going to be solid in what I believe is truth. Solid enough that people, when they throw at me various views, I have something to test them against. And some view, when people try to tell me, you can have your own truth. Everybody has their own truth. I have to stop and say, wait a minute. If it's your own truth, but it doesn't match what's real, it's not truth. It's your own delusion. And for me to allow you to continue having your own delusion is not to help you. Because there is truth. And God's people are called out of the world, called out of the world to be a community to provide herd immunity to society. I think there's some issues that if we would get solid on them, we can start stabilizing America. Now, there's been a lot of fear in the church getting weak need, thinking we're going to lose it, that society's going to get too big for us. I want to tell you, you know, all we have to do is get back involved again. All we have to do is stop being afraid. All we have to do is come from the heart of Father God rather than judge God. Don't talk to people from God says this, therefore it is, and you are going to hell if you don't do it. No, talk from a place of a parent who is concerned that people are on course and life will be better if you walk in truth. The church if she can get on course speaking truth as a parent, she can speak and hold her immunity, but get some wisdom and reason behind her and not just be reactive nor say things irrationally, but come to a new stability and find out what is true.
I'm almost done here, okay? I'm sorry holding you so long. You know, this book, there is a cry in the body of Christ all over America right now. The churches that we go to, they want to get back to understanding what this book is. Now, it's rather surprising because since about 1960, especially, you know, back then, I was younger, there was a drifting away from a trust in this book. It actually goes back to the time of the 1700s where society has been attacking this book, attacking the validity and whether it's trustworthy. It received the height of attack in the 1880s up to 1910. That was when most seminaries and Bible colleges in America became liberal. Liberal in the sense they no longer believed that the miracles in this book actually happened. It was a time in the history of American religion when most mainline denominations no longer trusted this and they began to try to explain away. And I gave one example uh, yesterday morning when I was talking about the number one way to explain from church pulpits in America how Jesus uh, multiplied to feed 4,000 people. In mainline churches, that means the main denominations, whether we're talking Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopal, mainline denominations, number one way of explaining in the 1880s and 1890s was to say Jesus was so charismatic, he inspired everybody to pull out their lunches and share them with each other. That was the most common way in the 1880s to explain that there was no miracle in multiplying bread, but it was simply a charismatic moment. Now, in the 1880s and 1890s, when there was a huge change in seminaries and Bible colleges to change the ministers of American mainline denominations, they not only explained away the miracles, they also explained every prophecy in the Bible. And what they had to do is the prophecies that are written in the Old Testament, there's just over a hundred of them that prophesy about Jesus Christ. But because they believe nothing miraculous can happen, they had to conclude no prophecy can be true. That those prophecies that are written in the Old Testament, it's impossible for anybody to know beforehand what's going to happen. Therefore, the prophecies, especially in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Daniel, Number one way of explaining those in most seminaries here in America and in most mainline denominations in the 1880s and 1890s, a, a point in our history, was to say, well, those prophecies were not written by Isaiah. They were not written by Daniel. Actually, they were written after Jesus was born and somebody wanted to just use the name Daniel and then claim the book had been written 700 years earlier before Jesus. The same explanation was given for the book of Isaiah, that it wasn't a book of Isaiah, but it was Deutero, Deutero Isaiah. It wasn't written by a real Isaiah, but it was actually written after Jesus was born, but they pretended that it had been written by the real Isaiah. And most Bible schools and seminaries explain the book of Isaiah and Daniel because obviously any book that prophesies of something that's going to have seven to 800, 800 years later can't be true, so it must have been written after the event. Now, I attended four seminaries in my life, and three of them 
were more detrimental than positive for my life. Something happened in the 1940s that changed all of that. It's what's the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. A bunch of scrolls out in the desert, you know, off of the West Bank over in Israel, and then some in northern Egypt were also discovered. And those scrolls have all the Old Testament except the book of Esther. All of those scrolls date, carbon date, to more than 300 years before Jesus was born. In 1944 and 1945, when most of them were brought forth into the scholarly world, and all of them proven dated more than 300 years before Jesus, Isaiah and Daniel were dated, it proved that these books that prophesied about Jesus, that a child will be born, a son will be given to us, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Or Daniel, who actually prophesied the year Jesus would step out and begin his ministry and the year Jesus would die. That book was actually written 300 years before Jesus was born. When it came out into the scholarly world, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it made a fool of every liberal scholar, every seminary, every Bible college throughout the earth. And now those Dead Sea Scrolls, they're being taken all different locations, major cities around the world. And since 1955, they are being transmitted. They were in Seattle, Washington uh, at one point by the Space Needle. I went over because I wanted to read them. I had to learn Greek when I was, uh, and, and I know a little bit of Hebrew, but I had to learn it and I wanted to go look and see. Yeah, there it is. Talking about my Jesus. 700 years before he was born. Glory to glory. Hey, you liberals. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> hey, you professors that tried to teach me that the book wasn't real. I told you so! <laughs> I'm getting the last laugh. And God scoffs from heaven at the foolishness of mankind. Here, here is a book. It talks about Abraham. God said he was going to bless every family on earth through Abraham. Today, out of 8 billion people, more than 6.5 billion claim Abraham as their forefather. That includes Christians, Jews, and Muslims. No other human being, other than the one that God chose, is considered the father of three quarters of all of humanity today. How, how did God choose that one person? Who, 3,000 plus 2,000, 5,000 years later, would be the father of three quarters of the earth? Three quarters of the earth claim him as the forefather. How, how is this New Testament, Jesus Christ, the one individual on earth who has more followers than any other human being? And I was told that, well, there's only one book that talks about Jesus. 
well, this isn't one book. This is 44 authors writing over the course of 1,500 years. Over the course of 1,500 years, 44 plus authors, all these books are put together. And you know, they never argue with each other about who God is. Every one of them just builds on the previous writer. I don't even know two Christians who can write a book and agree. Here's a book written over 1,400, 500 years by 44 authors, and they don't disagree. They all say that one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he sent his son into the earth to die for us and rise again. And now this Jesus has more followers than any human being in history. Christianity is alive and well. Don't grow weak need now. It's time to get strong. It's time to know who you are. It's time to ground yourself. It's time to create herd immunity. To be the body of Christ and to say we can't be shaken. We know who we are. We have a book that God breathed upon and he foretold of these events. Not only did he foretell before Jesus came, but then Jesus foretold that he was going to build a church and the gates of Hades will never prevail against it. And this church will attain to unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and to the full stature which belongs to Jesus Christ. This group of people will attain victory in the earth. Nations may fall, other religions will fall, but there will emerge in the earth a beautiful bride and nothing can stop that. No organization, no government, no religion. We are on the rise. We are the largest entity on earth and there's nothing can stop the success of God's people in the earth. That's what truth is. We all stand up. We all stand up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The church is alive and well. The church is alive and well. The church is alive and well. Oh! People of God, people of God, you are on course. You thought you failed me, says the living God. You thought you could listen to the world and hear their words and then combine their words with my words. It won't work that way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Use me as your pillar, says the living God. Use me as your fountain. Hold on to me because I am creating you and making you and I am doing a good job. You are a success. Look how far you've come. Look how much you've come through as individuals. The church itself has survived 2,000 years of attacks, of nations coming against it, of people trying to kill it, and you yourself are still standing. Look what you have come through, and still you are standing. 
God is proud of his children. He is for you, not against you. We speak in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church sounds loudly and clearly the trumpet bass. There is hope for the earth. It is not a voice of condemnation. It is not a God from Mount Sinai. It is a Father who wants to speak and help people get their lives on course. It is a father who says life will be better if you live this way. It is a father's voice that we are hearing, not to make slaves, but to make children. It is a father who wants relationship. It's a father whom you can trust. That's who we declare to the world. Would everybody confirm this by hugging somebody next to you? and say it's true. I speak against the gossip of the world that is trying to come against God's people. A command in the name of Jesus Christ, bow, give up. The kingdom of God is advancing. The church is arising. God's people are maturing through it. And everything that you have meant for evil, God is using for good to create a people who are strong, to create a people who are vaccinated against the gossip, who are vaccinated against the delusions, who are clinging to the living God. That's who God's people are. Thank you, God. We put our trust in you. We walk in you. And we continue walking with one another because we know it's what you want. And we want to make, Daddy, we want to make you happy. And everybody say amen. 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 Thank you. I'm going to close now but present an opportunity for some personal prophecy. So just personal prophecy. I believe God talks to every human being, even non-Christians. I believe God's telling everybody, I love you. The first thing he's saying, but the problem is people have a hard time hearing or identifying that that's God talking to me. But God is a God who's always whispering his love. He's revealing himself creation, saying, I am creator, I am creator, I am creator. But he also wants to speak personally to individuals. But we, I sometimes have a hard time knowing what's God saying. That's what the gift of prophecy is for. Sometimes God help somebody speak out what God wants to say to that individual. And if that person really is speaking from God, it will bear witness with your spirit because it's something God's trying to tell you. But when you hear someone really prophesying, it's really from the Holy Spirit, it'll click. And that instant you'll know, how did he know that? That speaks to what God's been saying inside to me, so it must be God. If it does bear witness with your spirit, that's when you know in your heart. Sometimes you won't be able to right now, but you can just set it on the bench and say, I'm going to wait on that one and see if it comes true. Prophecy is us simply saying, God, we know you want to talk. I'm going to limit it to a few and dismiss the rest of you. I'd like to, nobody volunteer themselves. I need to do it this way. Do you know somebody in this room who needs a prophetic word today? I want to give you permission to go get them. Say, I want to take you up. 
Will you bring them up, stand behind them, and listen to the prophecy? I'm going to cut it off at 10 individuals. The rest of you, you know, hug necks, love on each other, but you'll be dismissed. If you want, you can listen in if you know somebody. Um, but you have permission to grab somebody right now. Bring them up, stand behind them, listen to the prophecy. I hope these will be recorded so they could get them um, and listen to them. But we believe God talks to individuals. But we believe it, we should always judge. But you are the number one judge if it's from God because you'll have a bare witness right in your own heart. So when I stand in front of somebody, turn your heart toward God. Say, God, please talk to me. Looks like we probably have 10 here now. I'm going to stop at 10, okay? The rest of you, hug somebody, you know, have a good time, listen in, but you are dismissed.